Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Ah, what a great memory that was, huh, Ben? (laughs) What was the memory? Uh, Your Ben Jarofsky (laughs) show for Thursday, December 8th. Is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago <laughs> Teachers Union. What's so funny? I just love it when my guests start sending me texts right before I do the show. Where's the link? <laughs> it's coming, guests. It's coming. We're on it. We're okay. We're <laughs> how many? This is not our first rodeo, guests. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. I apologize. The Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. You know, they also have concert listings. My favorite part of the Chicago Reader. And they talk about pot every now and again. And so much more. You okay? You coughing? You know, just doing the pot thing really reminded me that every time I smoke pot, which I haven't done since 1981, I I would cough. And they, oh, God, what a wuss. No, the, the saying was, the more you cough, the more you get off. That's what, that's what the saying Whoa, was. that's a millennial saying. That wasn't back in the day saying, okay? We didn't say that back in the day. What they would go is, oh, can't handle it, huh? <laughs> hey, quit reminiscing on your hippie days. Oh, those were good days. If you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. It is Thursday, December 8th, and this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, one could argue he is still in his hippie days, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Time Solidarity Thursday, and here's why. I'm having solidarity with the New York Times, my brothers and sisters uh, on the New York Times, what, editorial side, the reporters, even the editor. Yeah, you know, I've never been an editor. So it's hard. But, you know, I got some solidarity for the editors of the New York Times, the lower the lower down the total poll editor, editors. You know? uh, they're doing a one-day walkout. Uh, they're apparently in uh, some kind of uh, contract negotiations uh, with the bosses and the bosses are being cheap and come on bosses. And, you know, I got two ways of looking at this. On one hand, I stand with my brothers and sisters, the ink stained wretches who put out the uh, product, even though there's no ink involved anymore. So they're really not stained, Uh, but that's just an old cliche and they're hard to break. So I stand with you. Uh, on the other hand, I am a very important investor in the New York Times of sorts. I subscribe to the New York Times. I'm holding up the whole operation with an ungodly bill. <laughs> so, you know, like every day it comes on my front, de- uh, front desk, on my front steps, the New York Times. So I'm an important partner with management of the New York Times, you know? So you think I'm like a shareholder. You think they would send me a message or something as to their side of the story, but. 
I guess they're taking me for granted. So uh, we're supposed to be in solidarity with uh, the reporters of the New York Times. They were in a one-day walkout, uh, and as such, we're not supposed to click on it. So it's permissible. I understand it. I got permission from, I don't know, I gave it to myself. When the newspaper arrived, I opened it up and looked at it. Uh, and I don't think I'm breaking my solidarity uh, with the New York Times by doing that. I don't think that affects it in any way. They will. They sent me the newspaper anyway, so they don't know that I opened it, right? So I think I'm on uh, solid footing. But I'll tell you what, those dastardly New York Times people, they keep sending me it, those uh, little uh, breaking texts. You know, if I breaking news, go to the New York Times, breaking news, Brittany Griner released, breaking news. You know, and I'm like, you know, I'm so tempted. It's so, it's just such an old practice that's hard to break. My finger is about three quarters of the way of clicking on the link, almost clicking on that New York Times link. And then I say to myself, not going to do it, not going to break that solidarity that I have with those New York Times reporters. Oh, I know you're trying to tempt me. New York Times, you're like Eve in the Garden of Eden. Just getting all biblical on you as I look at my distinguished guest who's waiting to come on. She knows her Bible stories. You're trying to tempt me with that apple, but I'm not going to fall for it, New York Times, because I'm standing with my brothers and sisters as tough as it is. And it, it, and, and, and I was reading uh, some of the, um, the tweets uh, that Amanda Hess has been putting out, who is a reporter for the New York Times, who's, I guess, the leader of their local guild. Uh, and she's uh, retweeting some of the um, uh, the tweets that New York Times readers are putting out about how they, this one lady had a, uh, has a streak going back to 2007 of doing the New York Times crossword puzzle every day. And she's going to break that streak in solidarity with the reporters uh, at the New York Times Guild. I'm like, if that... Woman in New York could break it. What is that? Let me do the quick math. That is a 15-year streak, ladies and gentlemen, of doing the New York Times crossword. If she could break that streak in solidarity, I can withstand the temptation to click on all those little text messages. <laughs> the New York Times is sending me, like, breaking news, Brittany Griner. First of all, yes, Brittany Griner. I'm so happy that Brittany Griner has been released. But you know what? I'll read about it on the Washington Post for today, New York Times. Come on, don't be cheap. Cut a deal with the reporters. All right, without further ado, uh, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guest, an old friend, uh, Helen Schiller, former alderwoman of the 46th Ward. Back in the day uh, when Helen, oh my goodness, when I first moved to Chicago in 1981, Helen Schiller was already a name. She'd already run against, how about this, Helen Schiller, Raph, Ralph Axelrod, I believe it was in 1977. 78. Uh, 78? 78? Mm -hmm. Oh, I'll we'll have to edit that out to make myself look smarter. Uh, anyway, I thought it was 77, but I guess, you know what? You would know. You just wrote the book, uh, and uh, you lived through it. 1978, I remember that, uh, reading about that campaign. Uh, and uh, reading about the activism that was happening in Uptown uh, as Helen Schiller uh, and the Heart of Uptown Coalition, her colleagues, her allies, her comrades, uh, these uh, hippies and radicals, just like a few years older than me, but part of my generation came to Uptown and sort of like changed the political dynamic. And so, of course, I was rooting for them. I mean, I'm not going to be rooting for the Donkey Club of Uptown, 46 Ward, uh, Orbach and Axelrod and those guys. Uh, and Helen's new book, 
It just came out. It's called Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. I'm showing uh, Helen that I have it. Published by Haymarket Books. Shout out Rory Fanning. Thank you very much for uh, sending me this copy of it. Uh, and so, uh, Helen, uh, first of all, congratulations. Uh, I have I told you in the phone, mixed emotions about this. Uh, without sounding too condescending, I didn't want you to be able to write a sentence because I didn't want an alderman or an older woman to be able to be claim that she's a good writer. But I have to give you credit. This is a pretty good read, Helen Schiller. <laughs> uh, so, without sounding too condescending, pretty good read Helen Schiller good job congratulations on writing this book thank you <laughs> so I yeah. wanted it to be like a novel so hopefully we got there yeah uh, it does have a uh, that kind of approach uh, so let's start at the beginning if it is like a novel let's start at the beginning because there's a revelation that I was completely unaware of uh, that you talk very openly about uh, and it kind of like it's just like it, it gave me a whole new sense of um, what you were going through your whole life, but particularly here in the city of Chicago, when you came on, you took on the machine, took on the powers that be uh, in the 46th ward. So this goes back to your early days when you were a kid growing up in New York uh, and you were the victim of sexual assault. Why don't you just sort of usher our listeners in on that uh, sort of as the start of the story. If it is a novel, that's kind of the start of the novel. Yeah. Well, it's not the first chapter, but it's definitely in the beginning. Um, so I had, um, so my brother, I, I have three, I grew up with three brothers. I have another brother who's younger and, uh, the oldest there, there's, um, I'm right in the middle. One's six years younger than me. One's six years older. And then there's one is five years older. My oldest brother, um, had a very severe, um, so, oh, well, he had a very, it's just for context, he had a very severe accident when he was a teenager, which ended up resulting in him becoming a junkie, uh, addicted to heroin. Uh, but somewhere in there, probably around that time of the accident, or maybe a little earlier, um, I can't really exactly pinpoint the timeline, but he uh, began sexually abusing me. And it was something that was... Um, obviously very confusing to me as a young kid, a child. And um, we never talked about it. And I was, I was, uh, he, he assured me I should never talk to anyone else. Um, and so it was a secret and I lived with that secret. And then later on when it became apparent that that was going on, I'm pretty sure to my parents, their response was at least, I'm not sure my dad ever really got it, but my mom's response essentially was to send me away to school instead of sending him away. Uh, so that's sort of the essence of it. It's, wow. it is a book. Uh, sent you away, uh, from school. No, uh, they took I, uh, me out of yeah. the school I was in, which was, I was in my first year of high school, actually. So I was in my first year of high school. I was in a in a, an experimental program in a new school uh, that they just built where we lived that was um, changing up the way in which you studied science. And so I was in this sort of model program, and I was really excited about it. And the first year we did, I think, biology, and we were supposed to do chemistry the next year, which was switching up the order. I have no idea how they do it now. And um, and so 
And I really liked it. I had friends there. You know, I was doing sports there. It was the whole thing. And out of nowhere, they said, you're going away next year. And um, no explanation. I had obviously been acting out a lot um, leading up to that, which was uh, the reason that they were sending me away. Um, but they didn't really give me an explanation except to make me feel like I was turning into a juvenile delinquent and therefore this is what they had to do to take care of me. So they sent me to a school that they had actually earlier sent my two brothers to um, six years earlier because, um, or five years earlier, because uh, we didn't have a high school at that time where we lived. There wasn't one built. So they had, and my mother was always into alternative stuff. So she found the school, which was literally no more than 100 students ever. In, in the whole school, and it was a very experimental. Um, they weren't really um, credentialed, but the uh, headmaster was very well known in education, um, in, in the education environment, and they were all from, you know, the Northeast. He had great ties and relationships with people in Harvard and Yale and all those places. So students were going wherever they wanted to go. I mean, and the education level was not bad. It was very sort of collaborative and collective, but, you know, it wasn't your normal kind of place. It was a hippie type of place. It was a school that uh, most of the, uh, most of the people there were either from uh, sort of left-leaning families, activists, uh, Pete Seeger's kids were there, uh, Paul Sweeney's kids, who was the head of the, the, the uh, editor of the um what's it called the monthly review there was um uh what's his name um the head of uh, uh of the highlander school the the founder of it his his son went to school with me so it was it was that it, it was that that was part of it but also student there were young people who had basically been kicked out of every other prep school in the northeast they were from the northeast they were there too and a bunch of rest of us who were kind of whatever had different reasons for being there so it was an interesting experience to say the least and immediately i clashed uh, when I got there, largely over the question of education and also just how girls were treated, which I was always reacting to. So that kind of gets woven in through the whole story throughout the book without it being explicitly what the book's about. Yeah. Well, there, there's uh, threads that I see uh, in your life. They're similar. I followed your public life uh, in the city of Chicago very closely all those years uh, when you were the old woman in Uptown. Uh, first, when you were a, a daily uh, uh, opponent, Mayor Daly. Uh, and then later on, after you made your record, your piece with Daly, we'll get into all that. But um, just protesting as a kid uh, in, in uh, high school, uh, even among protest lefty kids, you were like the outspoken one. And so. Well, no, actually, I was the shy one. I was always shy in high school. I was I was even shy in college. I was always the shy one. I, w I started to be more outspoken in college, but in, sh in, 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 in high school, I was shy. shy. I, was, I was like a sponge. All right. Well, uh, so my question is, and this is a question I ask myself a lot too, but I'm going to put it to you. Leave me out of here. <laughs> so a lot of kids rebel from their parents. You would have plenty of reason to rebel from absolutely everybody in your family. Okay. Uh, in which case you would have become like a, a Barry Goldwater Republican. So what was it about the world and the way the world is and was uh, that pushed you in the direction 
of the politics that you have as opposed to going a different route? Um, well, I can just talk about the influences and what they meant to me. So my dad in the, this is in the book, my dad early on, um, when I was very young, had me watch the army, kept me from kindergarten actually to as from school to watch the army McCarthy hearings. And, um, I described that whole thing, but the point about that is that he made a point about fascism that never left me. Uh, my family, my parent, my father, uh, in my, both of my parents were immigrants who came here in 1920. My mother from what's now Belarus, but was then, she came with um, her mom, her dad, and her, her, three, her two sisters, and her mom was pregnant with one of her brothers. The other, they were both born here, she two brothers. And they came from a town called Baranovichi, and it was when my mother was born, it was Russian, and she has a Russian birth certificate. When her sister was born a year and a half later, it was uh, with a um, German uh, certific birth certificate. And when her other sister, a year and a half later, was born, it was with a Polish certificate. And when they came here, she was very clear my whole life until after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, she was very clear that... Um, she came from Poland, but she wasn't Polish, that, that her family was stateless until they came to the United States. My dad, or we came citizens here, my dad came from Lafayette, and in the same year, uh, he was, my mother, when she came, was six and a half. When my father came, he was actually 12. He came alone. His history was that his dad, they, this is 20, so it's right after the First World War. His dad, who was a tailor in a town called Leopaya, which is a relatively small town off of the coast of the Baltic Sea and 240 kilometers away from, from Riga, the capital. Uh, when he came here uh, during the war, his dad, just before the war, his dad had gone to Russia to buy textiles for his tailor shop. And when he got on his way home, he got stuck in Riga. He couldn't get to Leopaya because uh, because the, that's where the line was of the German occupation in World War One. And consequently, my dad, for the next several years, who was the oldest and about what, five, six, seven years old during this time, maybe eight, um, became responsible for selling trinkets out of my, my grandpa's um, uh, tailor shop on the street for them to survive. So that when his father came home after the war, got home, and they received an invite, a ticket from a cousin in Chicago to come to the States, he... Um, uh, on a boat, uh, they decided instead of having the father come, sorry, instead of having the father come, that they would send my father as a reward. But my father didn't take it as a reward. He took it as a punishment. He took it as, as a sign that he had failed. So this is, remember, 1920, and they're in Latvia. Um, it's a, it's just become part or about to become part of the Soviet Union. And they have uh, and, and, and everyone's recovering from the war. And he has very little, if any, means to communicate with them. And he's feeling like he has been disposed of. So he comes to the States and has to pretend he's 16 because legally he can't come alone unless he's 16, which then sets the trajectory of his rest of his life. He's always four years older. Later on, he can't get into the he can't go fight against the Nazis in the war. And that's really the point of my saying this is that he know he's aware as the Jewish community in New York was very aware of of what was going on in Europe while the U.S. government was really denying it and the media etc. They were saying no, that's not true. It couldn't possibly be true what's happening. But he knew and he knew he was and he came to know that he wasn't going to see his family anymore. And my mother also still had an aunt, one aunt who had not emigrated. 
uh, out of of uh, Baranovici. She had gone instead to Germany. Everyone else had gone either to Israel or, or the U.S. And they knew that she was, I mean, she died. My, my father assumed his whole family died. So we had dinner every night at six o'clock and every night at six o'clock, my parents who more and more didn't get along about anything did get along about discussions about politics. And they uh, embedded in that was the Holocaust and embedded in that was a very strong theme among both of them about, um, uh, about, uh, about, uh, about fighting for the underdog, I'd say, and a, and a notion that you should always put yourself in other people's shoes. Uh, they were very progressive, and even though they were, they're very progressive in a very humanitarian way. They weren't very good towards each other. They argued a lot. They argued with other people. Um, they had lots of. My mother had lots of friends. My father not so much. My father was always working, but they had a basic core, and um, and we had a uh, my. We had a scare, which I talk about in the book, a little scare with the FBI. My father did. Um, so my mother reacted by throwing out virtually all of her books. But there was one that remained and survived that caught my attention when I was, you know, just learning, just getting into reading. And it was a book by Howard Fast about the about Reconstruction. You know, and he always wrote so clearly. He, he could have been writing for kids. And uh, it stuck with, it's the first chapter book I read and it stuck with me and it infuriated me and it became a very big piece of how I thought about the world. Yeah. Uh, and just listening to your story and having uh, read it as well uh, in your book, uh, it, I see some similarities with mine. Uh, my family came, great grandparents came from uh, some of the same area around the same area. And everybody in my family was wiped out uh, in by the Nazis, mm -hmm. everybody mm -hmm. in my extended family beyond the people that settled here. Uh, so when you, you said something that really uh, rung true with me, you said uh, his family was stateless or her family yeah. was stateless until she came. That's kind of how I view it. Uh, this is <laughs> for better, or for worse. The only country I know, this is my country, as they say. Yeah. Uh, I have, I kind of have envy. Uh, I've said this on the show many times with, uh, my Italian American friends who just love talking about going to Italy, my Irish American friends that talk about Ireland, uh, my black American friends talk about, um, uh, mother Africa, et cetera, and so forth. Everybody I know, Oh, my home cup, like the world cup. I'm rooting for Greece. I'm rooting, you know, Danny Milopoulos, he loves Greece. I got nobody. I got uh, this is it for me, baby. The United States of America. That's all I got. And that's really all I want. But that's me. You, do you feel the same way? Do you feel as though you were stateless except for the United States of America? I kind of feel like I'm a citizen of the world. Um, you know, I'm very clear that I'm American. I grew up here. Um, I have, you know, I'm also Jewish, but so there's a very clannishness often among Jews, but what I discovered, but in, in New York, it was a much more progressive environment that I was in than in Chicago. Um, I had to, when I first came to Chicago, you know, I'm in Uptown, that's the donkey club. It's, it's not a very progressive community per se. And, um, and that's what I was confronted with because you can't do anything without bumming into politics here. Uh, so it was a culture shock for me. I now know many, many, many more people that over the years I've developed and found the more progressive aspects of the Jewish community but there's always there's been at least since the 60s, the mid 60s, at least a split in the Jewish community around Israel and varying different points of view. And I find that um, 
So that's so it's a little different than what you've described. I've always felt that I was part of that community culturally, so I had that, and we had it in our family. But um, but in terms of everything I've done as an adult, and even since I was a uh, in I guess since high school, has been interacting with people from so many different experiences and so many different backgrounds. Um, in the in the and often in the context of real struggle to survive or history of that, that it's I feel very. I feel very part of all of that. So that's what I mean when I say kind of a citizen of the world. I, I've, you know, I've spent time in, in, in Southern Africa and I've, in, I've spent time in different places in Europe and, um, and in Cuba and, I, and in Mexico. So many of those places are actually family. Um, but I've done that. Um, every time I've done that, it, it's, I guess because it's been tied to different struggles that I've been involved in or issues that have been a concern to me, it it just feels like it's home. It feels like it's family in some way. Um, So that's what I meant by that. But yeah, I get what you say. I think that's really, that's why people um, are, people like to have community. We want community. We want to build community. We want to feel part of something. That's the reason for all of the different ways that people organize. And when you're isolated, you still want community. So you form them. And often those form that you have are in fact or are just considered criminal because they're not part of the status quo and if it's engaged in survival then of course you know there's conflict because you're then become part of the underground environment and or economy and that leads to all sorts of other issues that we have but when we address those problems I think from the perspective of policymakers, we rarely acknowledge the community aspect to it and if we did we'd find better solutions. All right. So let's talk about uh, your, uh, you talk about community. Let's talk about the uptown community. Uh, In your book, you trace your evolution uh, from New York. You went to Madtown for college. That got you involved uh, in uh, various uh, anti-war movements. I'm sorry. Did you say Madtown? Yeah, did I? <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. This comes, comes out bad town, bad town, USA, University of Wisconsin, Madison, but you put the hippie, uh, hot smokers back in the day. I remember you well. Anyway, not you, Helen, but just the others. I know you didn't care. Uh, so you could have gone, think about this. You kind of were straight. Just follow me what I'm about to say. People go, oh, Helen, she's a hippie radical. But I mean, there were more people who were nuttier, far hippie or radical. Let's take hippie out of there. That's uh, just total nutcase radicals. Yeah, Bill Ayers, <laughs> I'm talking about you. And, uh, you know, you kind of stayed within the mainstream. Helen, just think about your political career. From the very get go, you were very mainstream, organizing a community, getting involved in local politics, running for aldermen. You know, uh, forming an allegiance and alliance with the great Harold Washington at an early age when uh, many of your peers uh, on the, uh, the, the new left, as it was called back in those days, just had just utter scorn and disdain for the kind of politics you were trying to get involved in the Democratic Party of Chicago, change it, of course. But you were still getting trying to get involved in the Democratic Party when old man Daly was around. So please react and respond, either vehemently disagree with what I just said or (laughs) explain what it was about you uh, that had you going in this direction. Take it away. All right. So first of all, we challenged the Democratic Party 
Um, I didn't really get in. I mean, we were okay. So we challenged the Democratic Party. And early on, I came to Chicago in 1972. Um, I came to Chicago in July. I was working on a clothing program, other stuff. But the primary thing we did in in August uh, was to organize against Hanrahan, who had been the state's attorney and was running for election, who was responsible for coordinating with the FBI and the Chicago police, the murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. And we spent most of the month, myself and others, spent most of that month in August circulating petitions that were titled Dump the Butcher uh, against Hanrahan as part of the organizing effort to get people to actually vote against him in November. And citywide, countywide, he was voted out of office. And that was huge because it was the first time that the machine uh, had, in a long time, had lost a dem- a, an important Democratic position, an de- important position for the Democrats. We were, um, the second thing we did was a rally to police brutality and establish community control at the Aragon. We were looking for for 3,000 people, and they came. We had 3,000 bags of groceries, and our keynote speaker was Bobby Rush, who was then the Deputy Minister of Defense for the Black Panther Party. So so we were, uh, and then in, in December, we ran a slate um, uh, for the Model Cities Council, and our slate came in behind the machine, but ahead of the Liberals, who also had a slate. So we were talked a lot about politics, but we talked about them from the perspective of, okay, let's understand the machine, first of all, because we couldn't do anything without interacting with the machine. The the first couple of weeks I was here, I started doing canvassing because we had a, we were building a distribution network, a door-to-door home distribution network for the Black Panther paper. And in Uptown, prior, we went everywhere. So we were, we, we focused on where more white people live, but we went everywhere door-to-door. And, um, and immediately, and the housing conditions were horrific. I'd never seen anything like that. In Racine, people were poor, but not like this. And uh, so I started naturally talking to people about, well, don't you think we ought to talk to your landlords or do something or blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they were really, I had great conversations. I came back the next week and no one wanted to open their doors. So, you know, I'm a little persistent and I got people to talk and I became, and I realized very quickly that what had happened was that the precinct captain noticing there were some new players on the street and they needed to find out what was going on, followed me everywhere I went and talked to everyone I talked to. And they were intimidated and afraid to talk to me anymore. So that was our work. We had our work cut out for us. So this was a big topic of conversation and what we realized and, and decided over the course of that year and the next was that the Democratic Party, this was a question of structure and content, that they had figured out really well how to communicate with people. They'd figured out how to set up structures that really acknowledged what we were talking about, the community we were talking about. But the way in which they held that accountable, so that was fine. It was a structure. But the way in which they held it accountable was really reactionary. It was manipulative. It was usury. It was horrible. It was oppressive. And, uh, manip- you know, it, it we and that's what we wanted to challenge. So we said, okay, let's use this structure and put in it our form of revolutionary 
content, which was a service to the people, engaging people in their own survival, focusing on day-to-day what's necessary data survival, and engaging in real problem solving that would have long-term effects. So that's what we did. And it was clearly a challenge to the machine everywhere we went. And um, and, and I, that's how I would describe what we did. And I would say that, and I think that I'm more confident of this after having read, written the book and gotten to the end of it and looked back at what I'd written, is that it was that practice and that perspective and so much of what we learned through the process of doing that became for me the informed method of work and perspective that I brought to being an alderman. Um, and it's how I approached everything. So, yeah. I was able to, I worked hard at being able to work with the Democratic Party because they were the most progressive, they, they were the, the game in town or with elements of it that were more progressive, certainly, obviously, Harold Washington. Um, and and really didn't, yeah, and mostly didn't get much involved with the Democratic Party, more with independent organizations until then, because he then was the Democratic Party. Uh, but then also, the everything I did as alderman sort of joined that history with a point of view that if I'm here, I have to have a material impact, that nothing happens overnight. You have to go, not only does, is there a process you have to go through from A to B to C to really have change effective, but you, or to make way, but you also, it's a prolonged struggle because so much of this has to be, so much of what we're 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 challenging our habits that have to be changed and therefore that change has to be internalized it's it's the same thing that harold used to say for those of us listening who remember that it, he said we need to, my focus is institutional racism and institutional um, uh, corruption, but we're not going to change that overnight. That's a 20 year struggle. And that's what he was referring to the need for internalization. So you make changes, you challenge, you know, you organize some things happen, but in order to be able to affect those changes, the laws that you change or what have you, the policies you make, you need time for people to be able to actually internalize it and for more education and whatever it takes to do that occur. So that's how I would talk about it. Um, I never really joined any party. I am, I see myself as someone who is collaborative and challenges people to be better than they are. All right. Well, that's a nice way of putting it, but I still believe you were very pragmatic in your own. Oh, I, uh, yeah. The bottom way. line uh, is there a material impact? And that's really important. Yeah. And thank you for that. that bottom yeah. line, because that's how, at some point you have to pull the trigger. You have to take an action. And is that and how do you figure that out? And for me, is there a material uh, impact for the people most affected and who need it the most? All right. Uh, before we move on from that, I'm going to give you a trivia uh, question. Let's see if you can pull this off. In 1972, yes, you're correct. Uh, many people throughout the city of Chicago, shout out Richard Burnett, Burnett my old friend who passed on a few years ago, yeah. uh, was teaching people. Like you had to teach them this, but old habits are hard to break. Yeah. So like, you, you don't have to vote Democrat. Yep. You can vote Republican and the sky won't fall. And yep. uh, so thousands and thousands of people who had always their life, listen to me, millennials, I'm giving you a history lesson, all their whole life have voted Democrat. They voted Republican in 1972 to defeat Ed Hanrahan, Cook County State's attorney, who, as uh, Helen Schiller said, engineered the raid on the West Side apartment in which Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were killed. They did that on behalf of a Republican candidate for state's attorney who was victorious. For 10 trivia points, Helen Schiller, what was that state's attorney's name? Bernard Carey. 
you know what? You haven't lost it yet, Helen. <laughs> Good job. You passed the trivia question, the trivia challenge. All right. Uh, let's go. Uh, let's move up ahead uh, in time a little bit. Uh, so from those early days of organizing against uh, Ed Hanrahan, from that first run uh, in 1978 uh, for Alderman, uh, you and your uh, comrades, your colleagues, and your friends uh, built an organization uh, that launched your political career, successful political career. I think it was 1987 uh, when you ran uh, for uh, Alderwoman and you defeated Jerry Orbach. Yep. I got to give myself credit for remembering that. Uh, so at that time, Helen Schiller, I was already writing stories for a reader about politics in Uptown. And I'm going to tell you something that you already know. People in Uptown either loved you or hated you. I mean, the people who hated you really hated you. And they would give me so much grief. They would tell me all the time, you don't know the real Helen Scheller. You knew the real Helen Scheller. And then they would fill in all these like diabolicals, evil stories about you uh, that I should know uh, that would supposedly change my attitude about what you were doing. Uh, which is an old Chicago tactic, Helen. People are always feeding you dirt on other people. Um, <laughs> that's just what they do in this town. You like somebody? Oh, I'll tell you something. This one's an old drunk. Huh? You still like them? Uh, they never said that about you. But uh, anyway, um, so talk about that. You know, you the haters in Uptown. I remember the Tribune wrote a story can't stand the Tribune. They did a whole story about Helen Schiller uh, was blocking development in Uptown. Mm -hmm. Helen Schiller alone. And that Harold Washington had allowed her to do this. And because of Helen Schiller, development wasn't happening in Uptown. They, they had some crybaby developer. I don't even know who it was. Doesn't really matter. Sobbing about how he didn't get a permit or something. Tribute acted like it was the greatest scandal ever hit. Unbelievable. Same Tribune who said that the, the Black Panthers were shooting at the police. All of a yeah. sudden, now, <laughs> that Tribune. Right. So, Helen, talk about it. Like, why do they hate you so much? Uh, you know, I'm the wrong person to say why someone hates me. Um, you can probably ask them. But I think they live in a different world than I do, and they had a different set of interests. So we had a situation where, I mean, the alderman that I defeated, Jerry Orbach, had a chief of staff who um, was engaged, had his fingers in the pot in the organizing of the kind of neighborhood gangs into a racially conscious um, active gang that was engaged in various different nefarious activities, but was studying, had, had, had political education sessions with a Nazi group out of Michigan and, um, and, and members of the Klan um, explicitly. I mean, they call him that and we know that this was happening and, um, and, and we knew he was engaged in it. And then Orbach just, you know, acted like it didn't exist. It was one of the, it was one of the reasons that I was actually passionate about accepting Harold's request to run for alderman, even though I sworn I'd never do it again. You know, Harold said, you're going to, I need you to be my 26th vote. I realized 
that I could win. So I needed to do it. And I really felt strongly about Harold having that. But I think that the, the who this candidate was and what he represented while he was wearing being Jewish on his sleeve at the same time was really critical to giving me the extra oomph that I needed, the extra really strong reason for running to really fight and do the fight that I needed to, to win. Um, it was, so we had, so the, the developer you talked about hired a publicist who actually later apologized to me, um, to really go after me that first summer. And that's when all those articles appeared in the Tribune. And, um, and it set a tone, uh, among people who were fearful of, uh, fearful of poor people and fearful of black people, particularly because every time we tried to do anything, the way in which they dealt with it was like the old Willie Horton thing in the old time politics nationally. Where, but the way they did it here was anything I was going to do was going to be Cabrini Green in order to be able to make people fearful. And um, and so mostly it was initiated by people who are going to make money by tur turning the community into an extension of the rest of the lakefront. And what we represented was really the impediment to that, and they hated us for it. So there were individuals that came up here thinking, this is going to be the next Lincoln Park. Let me get some land. You can treat it like a CD, you know, an investment, and it'll be great. We don't have to live there. We can rent it out, and later on, if we want to, we can, or we can rehab it, or we can move in later, but we'll make some money here. And I was I was a problem for people like that. And, um, and then all the fear-mongering uh, confused a a lot of people. So you had that kind of divide in a period of time when um, people were still, you know, Harold represented a change in direction of the city and a direct response to racism that we hadn't seen before. So now that conversation, being a racist, was no longer as acceptable publicly as it had been before. But again, like everything else, we needed time. It's an internalization. And I think the next... 10 or 15 or 20 years were all part of that. And the, the volume of the debate was enhanced when the internet came into reality. And you have to remember, we didn't have even the first email account I got with the city was in January of 1998. So that was almost 10 years. It was over. It was 11 years after I was elected the first time. So, an echo chamber started to develop as the internet, which I can't remember when the internet actually became a real thing, but we couldn't really use it till we were using computers more. So it became much more public and generally used starting in the nineties. And as that happened, this kind of attack became more and more. And there was somebody who started a website. I have no, he claimed he had no politics according to people that finally found him, but he made money off of the debate because of the ads and everything else. And he loved the debate that was going on and it was vicious. It was, people were on there just being, I mean, really some of the most outrageous stuff. And it was really, and in my office, it, the way it resonated in my office was, you know, I always had, uh, I was a um, black and Latino staff as well as white staff. I had more women usually than men, but I also had people who were gay and who were, you know, gay or lesbian or transgender. I mean, whatever we didn't, we, had a breadth of people in my office at different times and it was always important for me that we served everyone including people who didn't vote against me which always didn't sit well with my staff so we struggled and talked about this stuff all the time but the one everybody was welcome in my office but if you came in my office and said something that was homophobic or 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 um 
uh, racist, you are going to be challenged and you are going to be, you know, you, and, and if you wouldn't let up, you were going to be asked to walk out the door. That was my bottom line. You were, everybody had to be treated. We had to treat people fairly and respectfully. And we expected that back in the office. And if the core of that was something different than that, and sometimes it wasn't clear and we'd argue about it afterwards and I'd have conversations with people, but that was always for me a bottom line. And it didn't sit well with everyone. People wanted it, you know, wanted different things. And I worked really hard at making sure I had a service office that served everyone, which I think served there for me well, um, in order. And, and, but I was also very clear about the things that I needed I felt needed to be changed in city policy, which obviously everyone doesn't agree with. Um, and then thirdly, I worked really hard on the budget because to me, you have to know, you have to follow the money if you're going to solve a problem. And many people are concerned about their money and how it's spent and wanted to make sure it was done well. So they appreciated that I was bringing a lot of that into the light. So I had a really strange kind of coalition of people that supported me throughout the board uh, while I also had these folks that were just always throwing darts no matter what I was doing and based on a lot of misinformation more and more and more as we went forward and the internet was developed. No, it was really hateful and it was really ugly and yeah. uh, uh, it was very fetishizing and uh, I could go on and on and on. People had bizarre fantasies about you uh, yeah. that they would put out there and whisper in uh, reporters' ears. Lord knows the impact it had on journalists. People are always whispering into our ears. doesn't happen yeah. as much now with me because I don't follow politics on a day-to-day basis. That it, well, I, yeah. I follow politics, but for some reason they've left me alone. God thankful but they whisper stuff in your ears to poison you about certain people and i can name i always know uh oh this person's a threat the amount of whispering that goes on in my ears about a, a certain politics i know when the, when they become a threat and you know yeah. what people on the left do it as well so don't act yes. like you're all above it all lefties i think uh, everyone does yeah. it no i think you're right i agree uh, and, uh, so it was some twisted stuff, uh, fantasies about Helen Schiller in the 46 ward, which maybe we'll get into in another show. Uh, I'll avoid that conversation for the moment. Uh, I will talk about this though. You said you were a reluctant candidate, Harold, uh, Washington, the great Harold Washington, uh, talked you into running in 1987. I remember Charlotte Newfell ran in 83 and she was in the runoff against, uh, uh, Jerry Orbach. I'm doing it straight from memory. I know there was a mm-hmm. part of Uptown candidate, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Siegel, I want to say, but he lost. Yes. And then you guys see, that's how you guys were pragmatic. Don't give me this. You weren't pragmatic stuff. No, I, I never said we weren't pragmatic. We were very pragmatic. Yes, you were in 87. You were victorious. And I remember this and you put this in the book and I thank you for putting it in the book. There was a group in, uh, Uptown, uh, the Jesus people. And they, they did a lot of, uh, uh, not-for-profit housing, as my memory serves me correctly. Uh, and somehow or other, you, you lefties cut a deal with them, and they voted as a block for you, and that uh, gave you the votes you needed to beat Jerry Orbach in 87. This is ancient history, ladies and gentlemen. But was, oh, my goodness, the Jerry Orbach fashion. <laughs> they were so mad. They would, f- hey, Ben, your little lefty cut a deal <laughs> with the Jesus people. And I'm like, well, that was smart of them. I don't know why it took him so long, but why are you mad? Isn't that what you, isn't that what you do in politics? You make coalitions, you bring in, isn't that what you do? You expand the tent. The Orbach people would be all mad, red in the face and stuff. Uh, 
so, but anyway, I'm going to ramble here. You said, wait, 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 wait. so yeah, let go me go back to that for a second, because what actually, what happened was that the Jesus people have been here about the same time we had been here and they were serving food to the homeless and where they, they lived in these big, in the, a lot of the SRO buildings and they all lived there collectively, but they made their first floor available to people who are homeless. And they would, they did a lot of different stuff and we did what we did, but they were always tied to the machine and we had very little communication with them in a very antagonistic relationship relationship kind of in that absence uh so they were all electorally so they were always voting in block for whoever the democratic machine wanted including jerry orbach in the runoff in 1987 there was a forum that was held by all the people who were concerned with a it was organized by ONE, and they were concerned about they were pushing a an ordinance on displacement and the jesus people were part of that coalition so they all came to this rally that was a forum between the runoff candidates in 48 and in 46. And they had a very mealy-mouthed question about housing. And I, and you know, it was a Linsky thing. So they would, they held the mic, they had a question, they held the mic, they went up to everyone and they just wanted a yes or no answer. And the question was terrible. And I knew everyone on that stage was going to answer yes. So I literally, I, I kind of felt badly because it was a young woman who was really just beginning to, you know, be out public and do stuff. She was a young Vietnamese woman who had the mic. And I literally grabbed it out of her hand as I apologized and said, but I really have to do this, excuse me. And I rephrased the question. I said, this is the right question you should be asking. My answer is yes. I suspect it's not from the others, but why don't you ask them that as well? And every one of the others said, we'll answer yes to your question and no to hers. The next day, Denny Cadu, who was there, the, one of the leaders in the Jesus people, came to my campaign office. This was the weekend before the election. And he came to the campaign office and um, George Atkins and I were in the back of the office. And one of the other volunteers came up and said, uh, Denny Cadu is here. And we look at each other like, what? You know, this is the enemy, right? They have 500 votes, 250 votes against us. And um, George said, don't worry about Helen. I'll go up and talk to him, see what it is. And George comes back to the back. His face is like white. And I'm like, what's going on? And he can't believe it. He says, Denny says they're going to vote for us. Uh, because, and afterwards when we, and they did. So that meant a 500 vote difference because they gave us 250 and took 250 away from Orbach. It didn't, wasn't the difference in the election, but it was the difference in whether or not we had a recount. Um, when we talked to them later, because they had kind of like a central committee, we all were like amazed that we hadn't talked before because we had a lot in common. These are these were evangelicals who were lefties. I mean, I don't know if they call themselves that, but they were more progressive. Mm -hmm. They're not reactionary. And they actually had a magazine called Cornerstone where they really did have these philosophical arguments about the direction in which that the failure of really the uh, of their the failure of their colleagues of their, their other folks that they were writing, many of their writing to that uh, in terms of dealing with the poor and um, really coming up with real solutions that they felt fit in with their image of God and, and religion. So we ended up really having a lot in common. And I think they've ended up having some of the best homeless service programs to, the, to this day in, in the city.
Yeah, uh, that was a good uh, riff. I had, uh, didn't had forgotten that history, though. It's kind of uh, truncated in the book. George Atkins, for people don't know, is sort of like, um, how do I put this? Like the guy was the political brains uh, behind the scenes for so many Helen Schiller campaigns, really knew politics, the ins and outs, the pluses and minuses, uh, in like nobody else really in the city. Yep. Uh, and, uh, so, so let me just ask for prayers for George or whoever you get your strength from in the universe. Cause he needs some right now. He's sick. Oh, Has some health issues. yeah. Uh, so, all right, let, yeah. I'm begging for good thoughts, good, thought, <laughs> good vibrations, etc. The guy, uh, George Atkins, a legend in Chicago politics, in my humble opinion, uh, would have made a fortune had he gone to the other side, would have made yep. a freaking fortune. Yeah, he, he would have. Because that's how smart he was or is. All right. Uh, so you said you were shy. You were, you, Harold had to talk you into it. Uh, I think it's a case of the lady doth protest too much, and I'll tell you why. Okay, he, he talked to you in at 87, but you ran, I think, five times after that. So what was you, did you see something in the Chicago City Council that you really that really uh, you enjoyed that make you uh, want to run? I, am I, is my math correct? You ran totally. six months total, yes. so five You're times. You're completely after. correct. Yes, wow. That, that, okay, so oh. I'm a stubborn person, Ben, and that's probably really important in my life trajectory. Uh, so everyone, all of this, all of the uh, political reporters and all the speaking heads, you know, are saying, oh, she can't win again. This is after Harold dies. She's done. She can't win again. She won on his coattails, blah, blah, blah. Well, and I'm struggling with, do I want to do this? Because I didn't want to do it in the first place. Should I keep going? What should I do? So on the one hand, I have people telling me I can't win, which, you know, don't tell me that. I'm, I'm like, I'll react. Um, if it's something that I feel strongly about, I'll ultimately, you know, really put my heart into it. But that wouldn't have been the reason that I did continue. It just was an impetus. Um, I really had to think about it. And we had spent a lot of time and effort in Harold, in, in supporting Harold and in the movement that created him and people all over the city were doing things that we did that then gave us the opportunity to have a candidate like him and support him. And he had hung in there for those five and a half years and had done extraordinary things. And then we would, you know, experience what I would describe as step backwards. And here we were a few years later. Uh, there was now we had by then Daly was the mayor and I had to decide what to do. And what kept coming into my brain was this. It takes 20 years. 20 years, 20 years to do this, to do that, to, you know, to make these changes. And I came to the conclusion that I had no choice but to give another 20 years to this attempt and that I had to at least try. There was no guarantee I was going to win that election. It was the hardest election. It was the one I almost lost, um, the one I probably should have lost. And um, and the more that uh, and then when they picked, they actually picked Quigley to be my opponent. Um, Bernie Hansen was the alderman of the 44th Ward. And along with that, I think he probably went and got Daly to support this effort. Uh, they had the full support of the machine people who were numbering at least three or four hundred in the water department who literally went out to do political work regularly. Um, they were out here all the time infuriating people um, for being sort of um, carpetbaggers and, um, and more and more as that unfolded I became more assured that I should do that and during that first term I was able to have some actual impacts which is 
gave me the hope and expectation I could continue to. So it was during that time that we passed the Human Rights Ordinance. It was during that time that I was able to expand and and increase and make more uh, the sanctions against South Africa, which had a national impact. It was during that time we were able to start doing, I was able to put together a full service office here that was really good. And I didn't want to give that up. It, we, we were really, we were really showing a model. There were so many things that we were able to do that I felt that I could continue to do going forward, that it was really worth that effort. So that was really Right, let me let me uh, add my little uh, uh, mustard to this sauce, because uh, this is one of my favorite elections of 1991. Mike Quigley versus Helen Schiller. And, uh, <laughs> I wrote about it like, I don't know how many times. Uh, and so in 87, Helen, as she said, was elected. Harold Washington was very much mayor city of Chicago uh, in November of 1987. Uh, Harold died. And uh, in 1989, Mayor Richard Daly was elected. Uh, and the all of a sudden, man, if this city just went from one, all those newspapers that were so hard on Harold and making sure all the eyes uh, were dotted and the T's crossed were jumped aboard the Daily Bandwagon. This whole city jumped aboard the Mayor Daily Bandwagon. They were just so happy that Mayor Daly was elected and Harold Washington wasn't around that they were going to do absolutely everything. This is me talking, not Helen Schiller. They were going to do absolutely everything they could to make sure never, ever again would a Harold Washington rise from the South side to take over a real like an independent black man all right and so helen schiller as a supporter of harold as a white woman who supported harold they had to punish her so they sent mike quigley into he didn't he wasn't even from the 46th ward they moved him into the 46th ward he ran around calling himself a reformer even though he'd been working for bernie anson who was a uh, a lackey for uh, Eddie Verdoyak in that uh, wore a ring, he wore a twenty nine ring. Bernie Hansen did. Sorry, Helen, I'm just going. I gotta say this the way it happened. They threw everything. Daily, they threw these guys. Their necks were so thick. I never seen guys with necks like uh, you standing on corners trying to intimidate people. And I, you know what? Shout out George Atkins. The, Helen Schiller won that election. I still can't believe she won that election. <laughs> I was like about a handful of all those Jesus people came out and voted for her again and you won. Yeah. And that's what went down in 1991. My, I could be my favorite aldermanic. I mean, I got Alan Streeter when I could go back in time. Right, right, right. I mean, I could do a whole list. I can do a top 10 favorite aldermanic elections, but this one there is right up there. Uh, I get choked up just thinking about it because they wanted to send a message that this was Daly's town. How mm -hmm. dare anybody run against him? How dare anyone dare to break ranks from the powers that be in this town? Uh, you broke ranks uh, and you were victorious. And then, Helen, you got to talk about this. What a coalition. I think about this. They're like pretty much it was a total rubber stamp city council that you moved into uh, yeah. in 1991. Uh, you know, whatever you say, uh, Mayor Daly, uh, <laughs> Mayor Daly pro proclaims the sun rises in the West. Sounds good to me, boss. We'll vote for that resolution. Uh, there were like three that I can think of who had the guts to stand up. One was you. The other was my old friend, may he rest in peace. Hard to believe that I call him a friend. We had our ups and downs. Robert Shaw from the ninth ward from Arkansas originally. And Joe Moore from Evanston. Uh, many years ago, he went to Evanston high school. If you know that I can't think of anyone else that on a routine basis stood up to daily back in then, you know, Tony, 
Breckwinkle every now and then, maybe. Uh, well, Dorothy Tillman did in the early days. Dorothy did. Dorothy did. Dorothy did. Yeah. And um and uh well, we're talking about ninety one. So I have okay, to. Early yeah. Days, yeah. That's it. That's it. What a coalition. Well, there were a few um, others. I'm just blanking on them, but yeah. <laughs> all right, not many. But I was able to pull people. You know, we as I got so for me after '91, well, up I was already doing this, but then I really started focusing on the budget, which of course you know. Mm. And for me, it was about getting answers and knowing what was really happening. I became it actually became that for me it was always knowing what was going on in order to be able to get stuff done, and um, and figuring out how to impact policy. Um, but it became a real thing, and on that I was alone for most years. Um, but it really was a way in which I could really articulate uh, issues with the city and what the city was and wasn't doing and be able to hopefully get some attention to those items as we proceeded. But the budget became really important to me. All right. Uh, to ask you this question, I wasn't going to, but it just popped into my mind. Uh, do you have regrets, uh, about, the passion in which uh, the Harold Washington forces uh, rallied behind Tim Evans uh, and turned on Eugene Sawyer. Uh, this is on my mind a lot. Uh, I've watched this Punch Nine, the great documentary about Harold Washington. Yeah. We urge everybody to check out uh, Joe Winston. Shout out uh, the director and uh, Monroe Anderson comes on the show all the time, and we talk about it. He was Gene Sawyer's press secretary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Conrad Worrell has come on this show. We've talked about it. May you rest in peace. Uh, regrets. A lot of people have regrets because they piled on Gene Sawyer and they made Tim Evans out to be the second coming of, I don't know, Paul Robeson. So I, I need to know, uh, in retrospect, do you think that was a huge strategic error for the pro Washington forces to uh, not rally around Gene Sawyer? Just go, you know what? You beat us. You outmaneuvered us. You got the votes. We support you now. Your thoughts. Well, I think it's complicated. I've actually had this conversation recently with a few people. I I think it's complicated um, because the dynamic was that there was an immediate move by the white, mostly uh, old Redolia 29 folks to to clear the ground so that Daly would ultimately become the mayor. And they were very clear. It was very clear to me that every move they were making was one that was geared to undermine the Washington coalition in order to make sure that there could not be an, uh, a mayor to, exceed, to succeed Harold um, that would be more in line with his philosophy and direction and for many people to continue to have a black mayor. Um, but the real issue, but it, we view, there, there was, it was, at least I viewed it at the time as a return to the old, an attempt to return to the old machine. And we had moved beyond, we were moving in a different direction and didn't want to go there. So for me, that was how I viewed and looked at everything. The dynamic was largely out of my hands. I don't, you know, if you ever watch the news clips and everything, I was always sitting on my desk while everybody was having their, you know, having all their whatever they were having, because I didn't have a place in all of it. It was really a, on the one, I, I, I didn't have a place in the, in, I didn't have a direct way or path to have a place in the conversation. Um, the best I could do is people knew where I stood and that's what I felt. Um, but they were having a conversation on, a, you know, they were really working it. 
And um, on the other side, the black aldermen were trying to figure out what to do. But you had a much bigger coalition. You had a coalition that represented, you know, remember, Harold's umbrella was very big. And the umbrella included people on the and, and in a way you could say on one end was it his notion, the way he described fairness. And on the other notion was the it's our turn, which he also expresses sometimes. So his umbrella included all of that. Um, and it included people from all over the city on different positions of all of that. Some people even, you know, who weren't African-American supported It's Our Turn or felt strongly on that end. And, uh, and others felt strongly on including African-Americans on the fairness end. So, you know, you were or whatever. That was the whole that was the whole umbrella. And there were people down there, heartfelt, screaming, yelling, wanting to maintain uh, the, the the achievements that we had. We had, um, you still there? Yeah. The achievements that, that, that had been made over the five years that Harold was there. So people are making their decisions accordingly. And they, you had this huge crowd of at least 10,000 people in City Hall demanding to go in a direction that wouldn't lead us backwards, which forward. So that's the context. Um, the fact that there were people that were saying, okay, maybe this is our way to retain that power and that direction is to go with Sawyer and others saying no, because that there he's going to, in order for him to win with, um, you know, with the, all these folks that want to turn it backwards, it's not going to be possible um, or go the other way. Now, would it have been possible for us to instead have regrouped and said, OK, let's work as a team and go for one or the other? The die against that had really been cast. Um, the, the, it wasn't. No, I guess this was the die. Never mind. I don't think that would. I think it was too hard. There was from the very beginning when Harold became mayor. There was such a strong support for him in the black community that the 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 breadth of black elected officials, especially in the city council, the aldermen who represented people who, you know, shot had been defeated in 83 because he supported Byrne. He came back in 87 because he had come around. You had Shaw, you had Beavers. Um, you had Strozier, actually, who all were very much a part of the machine, like the machine. They didn't just accept the structure like I did. They accepted the content. And they wanted, they, they were always chafing a little bit. Uh, we might have had lots of alliances and even afterwards had alliances, but they were chafing at the bit with that. So, and then you had people who are much more outspoken and radical in a sense, or um, had a and outspoken uh, where there had been bad blood already that it occurred. It was, it, it's a complicated thing. So uh, in every particular instance, when you're in the middle of it, it's not always possible to solve the issues and the problems that you have. It's much easier to quarterback later. So I would ask all the people with regrets um, if they think they in that moment to go back into the moment and figure out if they have a thought of how we could have done it differently, because that's the lesson that is really helpful for the future well, in that I'll, context. All right. And it's a, a good point. And I stand uh, guilty of doing Monday morning quarterbacking. I openly admit that well, we all uh, do that. Okay, <laughs> we no, all do I, that. I just admit that, that that's what I'm doing. Uh, yeah. And I think that uh, if the, I think that the appropriate lesson, you're absolutely correct, is to is to learn how to be really focused and disciplined at a moment of great emotion. 
Yeah, uh, exactly and, right. Uh, so you'd have this ferocious fight in the aftermath of Harold Washington's death between factions of his coalition, and it was split between uh, uh, Gene Sawyer and Tim Evans. And you clearly the votes were not there for Tim Evans. And so at some point, you needed someone who, or some people to say, we have to chill out. We have to take a deep breath. We have to do our yoga. Let's do tree pose right now. Let's calm down because we're too caught up in the moment. We're giving fiery speeches. Louis Gutierrez giving that fiery speech at UIC. I still see it. And then two years later, cut the deal with Mayor Daly. You know what I'm saying, Helen? So it's like we got to calm down. And do we want do we want to have this viewed as a victory of Richard Mel and Ed Burke, or do we want this to have the view as a victory for the Harold Washington coalition? I don't know if it's physically, emotionally, or mentally possible for someone to have done that at that moment. Do you get what I'm saying? To have that superpower no, I, I, to do that. I, I totally agree with you. And I don't think it was just at that moment, which is what I was going to say earlier. Uh, that day and that night when we're having the vote, you have to remember we started in the early sometime in the afternoon and didn't finish until four in the morning. Um, and up until we took the vote or maybe a half hour before it, it wasn't clear where the votes were. It was clear that they had an edge, but it wasn't clear that, that they were going to be able to get the votes in that context. But the way it, with the real but ultimately for me, it played out completely when we were, this is not in the book, but when we were in, I don't think, <clears throat> but when we were negotiating with the coalition folks about the, um, you know, Harold's people, so-called, uh, aldermen, around the remap in 1991 after the 90 um, census, uh, we had a very important meeting at which the coalition split apart. And without getting into the details of that or how that came down, it was um, at this point, it was to me then very clear it was split asunder. But it was the foundation for that was really these fit the this the tensions that had created these splits that were there from the very beginning without a solid leader really providing the leadership to hold it together. Um, that was the final that was really the final straw of that. All right, ancient history. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll still be talking about it for the rest of my life. There's no doubt. Me about too. It. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Monroe Anderson, we'll add him to that list. Uh, all yeah. right. Uh, we'll close. I love Monroe. I love Monroe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he loves talking about it. Uh, and, and as well as should, he was mayor, uh, Sawyer's press secretary. All right. Uh, so we'll close with Daly, Richard M. Yeah. Uh, for all those years, uh, you were an opponent. Uh, took a lot of grief, very tough elections. And then finally you made your peace. Uh, when you made your peace with Daly and uh, you, uh, I got so much grief from uh, the Helen haters in Uptown and they'd be like, Oh, Ben, you're a little girl. Look, see, she cut a deal with Daly. Now are you going to start writing pro Daly? Kyle? And then they ripped me. Okay. I've always said this about you uh, uh, and the accord you made with Daly. You swap. Your liege, uh, your independence from Daly for Wilson Yards. That's what I say. That's what I always say. It was uh, a huge victory for low-income housing in Uptown. I've always said that. And that's my stand, and I, uh, I will probably take that until I stop thinking about Chicago politics whenever that moment comes. Your response to my official position on Helen Schiller making peace with Daly, that you did it for Wilson Yards. Go. So 
I actually voted first on the budget in either 2000 or 2001. I can't remember. And we were just, I mean, I don't think that we were kind of in a process of trying to put together a plan for Wilson Yard. It was, I I can't remember what stage it was at. We started that in 98, some conversation. Uh, But I had done a lot from 98 to 2001. So that was kind of happening. But the, the budget was really, but all these things are connected. So the budget, I had gotten to a point with the budget where they were finally actually getting really close to giving me all of everything I needed um, in the year before I voted. In fact, they, I think they thought I was going to vote in, uh, I think it might have been in 2000 for the budget, whichever year I didn't get. And, um, but they, I was getting, all, I mean, I was really getting all the answers and I was, I had already learned how to operate within city government to get almost everything I needed done, regardless of whatever the commissioner thought. And some of the commissioners were went over. So in the fall, I didn't vote for the budget, whichever year this was. And then the next year, which was the year I did, they gave me every single answer to every single question in a manner timely enough for me to actually know what was going on before the vote. And there were a series of things that I considered that were really important. Several of them were local, several of them were citywide. The one I remember was an amnesty for parking tickets that they've been vehemently opposing. And I got them to agree to do it that year, which a lot of people said, well, are you doing stuff for the city? Why aren't you doing it for the, you know, got the same kind of stuff. So I voted that year. I remember the uh, chairman, I didn't tell anyone I was going to. They were hopeful in IGA, Intergovernmental Affairs. The mayor had no idea. And um, and and the chairman of the committee on budget had no idea when I said I was voting for the budget. She jumped out of her seat, looked at me and could not believe it. And I think she might have screamed. Um, And Daly just grinned and laughed because, you know, he was, you know, he always giggled around me anyway. Um, So that was, I think, 2001. It could have been 2000. In 2003 was the election that I endorsed him. And we were I remember the picture we we did the endorsement session across the street from where Wilson Yard was going to be. And we took pictures there and we did a tour. Um, and clearly it was helpful to have full support of the mayor's office because we, it was a compl- very complicated deal. Um, and we were doing it all sorts of new things. Um, and it was pretty broad in terms of what it was responding to. Uh, but I think that part of that also was that I had, uh, be, I had already won over a good, good portion of folks in terms of it. And I know, um, you know, Chicago still is a little bit of, you know, you do this for me, I'll do that for you. So there's always that aspect to it. But I wouldn't have endorsed him just for Wilson Yard. If I had still not been getting the budget stuff or, you know, there were so many things. In addition, we had finally done in the late 90s an affordable housing ordinance that was really a breakthrough. So there had been things along the way that I had been able to push them differently on. The the one thing I wasn't ever able to was on police misconduct and creating a real community-based community policing strategy, which I never felt CAPS was. Um, in fact, I thought it did the opposite because it isolated people. Um, so, but w- if you take that out of the equation, which was a big part of the equation, so that was sometimes hard for me. Um, I think that I had successfully been able to find a way to work with him towards the things that I thought were really important. And Wilson Yard, From the very beginning, from the day one of becoming alderman, I said I wanted to prove it was possible to do development without displacement and particularly to create a development 
intended for people who lived in the ward at its inception that included them at its completion. And Wilson Yard was that for me. And I wanted to prove that beyond the city because everywhere I went, when I'd go to these national conferences or local officials, I'd ask for examples and everyone got silent as soon as I did. No one had an example. And to me, that was the most, I had to do that before I left the city council. I had to do that. You know, I, uh, listen, I've long since gotten over you, uh, daily, uh, becoming allies. Uh, you know, t- even I get over things. Uh, and, uh, I do definitely think, uh, the good outweighs that deal. And Wilson Yards, it's, if I had to make a list of TIF funded projects in the city, an obsession of mine, uh, that were worth the money. I put, will definitely put low income housing, uh, in uptown on that list. And, um, I put up a uh, black ensemble theater. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> millennium park, believe it or not, I put that on the list. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm running out of things on that list right now. So we got to end the show anyway. Wait uh, a minute. Let me tell you in 2008, I'm yeah. in California. You call me. I'm um, finally, we just passed the budget there, but we haven't done the parking meter deal yet. On December 4th, you call me and you ask me for a comment. And that's how I know they're voting because they've told me they're not going to vote till I get back and they're going to give me some information. And you tell me during that phone conversation that my the TIF deal at Wilson Yard is the only one that you know of at that time that actually did what it was supposed to do. Yeah. Wow. What a memory Thank you, you have. Huh? <laughs> what a memory you have. I remember that. I remember. Well, that was important. We had just finally gotten it funded. We weren't sure it was going to get funded. It had just been funded. Yeah. That's why I took the vacation. I can't. I mean, you go back and read those stories I wrote about. There was shenanigans with everything TIFF related in the city of Chicago is shenanigans, ladies and gentlemen. It's the biggest scam in the city right now. Uh, And Wilson Yards has its share of that. But to Helen's point, it was the goal was to provide low income housing in a gentrifying community. I just think that's like what TIFF should do in my humble opinion. And uh, so, and all the, a lot of people in Uptown were like, Ben, Ripper, Ripper. I'm like, I'm not ripping her for this. Uh, This is not giving some developer money to gentrify a gentrifying area. Do you follow what I'm saying, Helen? There's like a difference. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Um, And I think your lawyer in that deal was old Reefman, uh, if I'm correct, went on to become the planning Commissioners yep. City of Chicago did not learn the lesson from Wilson Yards with Lincoln Yards, but we will not <laughs> go there, Helen Schiller. Uh, so we'll just leave that one alone for another time. All right. So I'm going to show you the book. It is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. A lot of the stories that you heard uh, Helen telling on this show are told in greater detail uh, in the book. Uh, shout out to Haymarket uh, Books for public it, Rory Fanning. Thank you for sending it to me. You're the man. And uh, Helen, it's just, uh, I knew we would go way over our time limit because you got the gift of gab and so do I. It's been so much fun talking to you, Helen. Yeah. Please don't be a stranger on my humble little podcast, okay? For sure. <laughs> Thank right. you. Don't, don't forget, you remember you said Chicago is something where someone does something for something and someone does something for something else. I know. Podcast for Brendan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want that son of yours on the show to talk gambling, a favorite topic of mine. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, thank you very much, uh, Alderwoman Helen Schellersch uh, from the 46th Ward. Uh, 
emeritus. I guess she's no longer the older woman. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of a joy, pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Helen Schiller and George Atkins will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace <laughs> and love, everybody. <laughs> take care, Helen.